Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. My name is Joel. Uh, I get to be the pastor here. Uh, if you're here for the first time visiting, relatively new, I haven't met you yet. Uh, thanks for being here. Special welcome to you. I like to hang out in the hallway after service and would consider it uh, an honor to get to meet you in person, if that is you. Uh, most people around here call me Joel. A couple people back in Three Creeks Kids. Uh, my daughter Cooper, who is seven. My daughter Willow, who is crazy. And three, they call me dad. And uh, man, it's and there's my son right there, out of kids. There he is. Hey, Judah. <laughs> I'm telling a story about Coops and Willow, so I'll get to you in just a second. All right, buddy. Um, that was that was perfect. Uh, last spring, Cooper and I, my seven-year-old, got to go to the Royal Manor Elementary School ball. Felt a little bit more like fire festival for kindergartners, but. Uh, we got to go. We got dressed up. I wore a tie. This is a picture of us at the ball. And then about six or seven months later, last fall, I asked Cooper, I said, hey, Coops, I want to know what you love. Do you remember what's your favorite memory with you and me? And she said, dad, do you remember when we went to that ball? And I said, I do. She goes, I think that's my favorite memory for me and you. And it just struck me, you know, I'm in, that, I'm in that season of life where I'm just trying not to miss it. Everybody tells me it goes fast, and it is going fast. And I'm trying not to miss it. I'm trying to create memories while I'm here that I can hold on to forever. And I, and I want to do that with some other people too. And so we, we got this idea a couple months ago, and we're going to try to pull it off here at Three Creeks. It's called the Daddy-Daughter Dance, and it's on February 10th. It's right here in Gehanna Middle School West. We already have a bunch of people signed up. Most of them, I don't even know who they are. There are people from the community. Uh, a lot of you have signed up before. But if you've got a, a girl, if you're a father or a father figure, and you have a girl between the ages of 3 and 13, man, we're going to bring the king and the queen, a whole bunch of princesses that they're probably going to recognize. The queen is going to read a story about how beautiful and unique and loved by God these little girls are. We've got cupcakes coming, photo booth. Tommy's the DJ, all right? So you know it's going to be pretty crazy. And I just can't wait to try to create this core memory. At Three Creeks, we love and believe in the next generation. And we want to help them create great, healthy memories, moments of wonder with their moms and their dads. This is just another way to do it. So if you are a father, a father figure, you know one. This is an obviously an easy thing to invite people to. Uh, you know what to do. Text three creeks to 97,000 and uh, we'll, throw a, we'll throw a party in the gym. All right. The king will be ready to roll out the red carpet for you. And speaking of kings, that's the series that we're in. We're in week uh, four, I guess. No, three. Week three of this series that we're calling Kings and Kingdoms. We're looking at the monarchical era of ancient Israel from 970 BC to 586 BC. So 27, 2800 years ago, first and second Kings are two books that are tucked 
into the middle of your Old Testament. It was originally one book, just Kings. But for people like me who, you know, that kind of intimidates somebody to read a book that's that long, they said, well, we'll just make two volumes for you. And so they made it first and second Kings. At first glance, if you read through it, and I know that some of you have, if you read through it, you go, ah, this feels a little bit like a history book. Feels like they're just telling me things that happened. But when you take a little bit deeper look, you realize this was written with a very theological lens. I'm going to try to shine a light on that today and explain what I mean by that. This is deeply theological and in a powerful, amazing way. This applies to my life. And it applies to your life today in 2024. If anybody in here struggles, like me, to have a heart that is faithfully, fully committed to the Lord in every way, well then today's message is going to be great for you. So before I get into this, I would love to pray for myself and for you. So will you do that with me? Will you bow your heads? Lord, I confess from time to time that I have uh, what feels like, I don't know another word to say it, another way to say it. So I say, it feels like sometimes I have a half heart for you. Like I love you and I know you're good and I know that you saved me, but I wrestle with giving you all of my life, every area. There are some parts that I want to keep from your influence, which is, which is crazy, but it's true. And so I pray today, God, as I share this from your word, that all of us would consider what it would mean to have a heart that's fully committed to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Second Kings, the second book of our series, ends in 586 B.C., so 586 years before Christ. And, and you may be familiar with this since you celebrated Christmas. Christ comes. Jesus Christ is born. He grows up. He does miracles. He raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. As you can imagine, that kind of begins to pique the interest of some of the people that lived in Israel at the time. He starts to get a following. Rome they start to be threatened a little bit by Jesus. He's got a little bit too much momentum. And so what do they do? They kill him. They put him on a cross. Public torture. They put him on a cross and they put him in a tomb. But the Bible also says that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb, but that he came back from the dead. That he rose again. That's what the Bible says. So that's what the disciples said. That's what 500 people or more who saw him with their own eyes said and then if you read the book of Acts, which is the story of the next few decades, it says that thousands and thousands of people believed the same thing, that they were added to their number daily, that, that thousands of people became a part of this movement called, at the time, The Way. We know it as Christianity, or certainly that was the early version of it, this, this following of Jesus. So the, the whole first century, the first hundred years, Christianity didn't seem like it had a chance when Jesus is hanging on the cross. All of a sudden, people all over the world are following Jesus Christ. And then, in the early 2nd century, so 100 years or so after the resurrection, the emperor of Rome says, you know what, we have tried to stop this movement from expanding, and we can't seem to do it, so rather than trying to stamp them out, let's make peace with the Jesus followers. Let's stop fighting with them. Let's appease them. See if we can 
get them to cool it a little bit. And so they, they called the leaders of the Christian movement at the time. They called them in. They said, hey, good news for you guys. We are going to make a statue of Jesus Christ. And we're going to put your God into the Roman pantheon. We're going to put him in the hallway of the gods. The pantheon is all the Roman gods are in the pantheon, at least all the ones that had any kind of following. You kind of make up a God, any god you wanted. Man, there are a lot of kids out there. What's going on? Willow, can you run out that way? <laughs> there you are. Go on, go on. You got a girl. There she goes. Told you. And um, the, uh, <laughs> thank you, Tyler. <laughs> My man. All right. Uh, they said to the Christians, they said, hey, we'll put a statue in the pantheon for you. What do you think they do? This backwoods group of nobodies, poor people, fishermen, no political influence, no family heritage that gives them power. What do they do? I think they might have been tempted to say, finally, look at us. We made it. Our God finally has a statue in the pantheon. We're official. Is that what you think they did? Well, it's not what they did. And I'm going to keep the end of the story for the end of the message because it's all going to tie together. I'll tell you what they said here in just a minute. Today we're going to look into the life of King Solomon, the third king in the line of kings in ancient Israel. It's the king that I call the king with the half heart for God. You see, when David was the king, his dad, the favorite king of Israel, they faced enemies on every side. In fact, one of the reasons why David is so popular is because God gave him favor over all of his enemies. But for the 40 years that David reigned, they, they had constant enemies on every side. But when Solomon is anointed as king, look what he writes. He says, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, a sense of peace, shalom. And there is no adversary or disaster. And so in Solomon's life, early on, one of the most famous acts is that he builds the first permanent temple for God in Jerusalem. Never before this moment had God had a permanent place for his people to come and to worship him. And this temple was unlike anything that had ever been built in history up until that point. Listen to some of these fun facts about the temple. Solomon sent 30,000 men to Lebanon to help cut down cedar trees and juniper trees. And they would float them down the Jordan River because that was the only species of wood that was allowed to be used in the construction of the temple. Solomon had 150,000 laborers on site and the temple was only 2,700 square feet. That's smaller than some of our houses. That's how big the whole temple was, 180,000 plus workers were working on it. There was one room in the temple called the Holy of Holies. It was 30 feet wide, 30 feet long, 30 feet high. And the entire thing was overlaid with gold. In it, eventually, was, they were going to bring the Ark of the Covenant. The walls, the floor, the ceiling, all gold. The tables, the lampstands, the altars, everything pure gold. The doors and the walls in most of the temple were either cedar or juniper, and the doors and the walls were carved into things like gourds, open flowers, lions, palm trees, and angels. You want to talk about a whittling project. 
I mean, this thing was, was breathtaking in every way. Nothing had ever been built like this. And it took them seven years. It took 180,000 people seven years. I know they didn't have the tools that we have now, but 180,000 people took them seven years to build the temple. Here are two things I think you ought to know about that, though. You might read through 1 Kings 5 and 6 and pass over this without realizing it. I thought it, I, I did, so I thought it, maybe I'd highlight this for you. First, in order to get all those cedar trees and juniper trees from Lebanon, he had to make a deal, Solomon had to make a deal with Hiram, king of Tyre, to get access to all of those supplies. And another point, those 180,000 people that were working on the temple, that was forced labor. And the text suggests that Solomon is doing, what, doing to others what Egypt had done to his people, exploiting and oppressing them. And the reason why I highlight this is because Isaiah, he wrote the book of Isaiah in the Bible. A lot of his commentary or his, his rebuke of the people, it, it points back to this point where in Isaiah chapter 2, he says one of, the, one of the great offenses that you've created, Israel, is that you have clasped hands with the foreigners. It says you've, you, you, you struck bargains with the children of foreigners. And cedar trees and juniper trees in Lebanon are often through the Old Testament viewed as a sign of pride and arrogance. This is an offense that Isaiah brings against the people. And in Isaiah 58, which is an even more popular passage, you may have even heard it before, Isaiah goes on to say, it seems like you want to know me. And you think that, you know, by doing all of these religious things that you are getting close to me. But, but the, the offense I have against you is that you oppress all of your workers. You exploit them, which is a sinful and selfish act. And so what we see early on is that Solomon, on one hand, does love God and wants to build him a beautiful temple. But we see these symptoms of a half heart for God. He he cuts corners. He doesn't do it all God's way. His heart isn't fully devoted to God. And this temple wasn't Solomon's only building project. He also builds himself a palace. And he builds his wife, who is Pharaoh's daughter, a palace. In fact, he builds a compound of five other giant buildings that are bigger than the temple. His focus shifts from building God's house to building his house. And this is an interesting observation. Here's the last verse of chapter 6. He had spent seven years building it, talking about the temple. Here's the first verse of chapter 7. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his own palace. It took almost twice as long for him to build his own house than it did to build God's house. And his house was bigger. And his house was also unlike anything that had ever been built. In 1 Kings chapter 7, it's an interior decorator's dream to read 1 Kings chapter 7 because it talks about all of the beautiful furnishings of the temple. The, the tables and the altars and the basins. And suffice it to say, is that, is that how you say that? Suffice it to say? Whatever, you get what I'm saying. Solomon spared no expense. And our minds can't even wrap around the wealth and the time that would have gone in to this. And when 1 Kings 7 ends, in 1 Kings 8, this is what happens. Solomon says, all right, it's done. 
We have completed the temple. We have furnished the temple. It is ready for public worship. This is the first time God's ever had a a permanent place to be worshiped by his people. So it's time to throw a party, a celebration, a grand opening, if you will, for the new temple. And so what they do is they bring the Ark of the Covenant from the other place it was being kept And the Levitical priests carried in and they put it in the Holy of Holies. And this is the description of what it was like. It's it's unbelievable. It's indescribable. But the author does his best. In verse 10, it says, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And then Solomon, when all of this is happening, stands up in front of the people and he puts his hands up in the air. And this is the beginning of his dedication prayer. He says, Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly. Notice that wholeheartedly in your way. And Solomon's prayer continues. And at some point throughout his prayer, Solomon ends up physically falling to his knees because of the magnitude of the moment that he's experiencing. And he dedicates the temple to the Lord. It's an amazing prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8. And when he says amen at the end, they throw a 14-day grand opening party. It says that they sacrificed, catch this, 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. And somebody texted me this week and said, how is it even possible? And I, all I knew was to say, Israel, they had the meats. <laughs> Thank you, Caleb. After 14 days, after 14 days of celebration in every way, It says that the people went home joyful and glad in heart for all the things that the Lord had done in Israel. During the years of Solomon's reign, this is amazing. He built up entire cities in Israel. He reorganized the government, installing 550 officials who supervised the economic growth of the country. He built and bought ships allowing him to trade goods, gold, silver, even apes and baboons would come to Israel. Kings and queens from other nations would would spend months traveling to come to meet with Solomon, to hear what Solomon would have to say, and they would give the toughest riddles to Solomon to see if he could figure them out. And it says in 1 Kings 10 that nothing was too hard for the king to explain. The Bible says that the wisdom of Solomon took the breath away of the queen of Sheba, that she was overwhelmed, that she had heard stories about Solomon. But even what she was experiencing was far beyond that. And not only was he wise, not only was he wise, but he was also rich. This is what it says about his throne. Catch this. The king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. 
Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All of the king's goblets were gold. Every cup he drank out was gold. Every year, 25 tons of gold were imported for Solomon's use. Solomon had 12,000 horses, which again is more horses than we have combined. And silver was as common as stones in Jerusalem. You're talking about lavish wealth that would take your breath away. And to summarize the wealth and the wisdom of Solomon, this is what it says in 1 Kings 10, 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God has put in his heart. So for, for 10 chapters so far of 1 Kings, we see Solomon, this seemingly good king who loves God, who built God a temple, hints of a half heart for God. But on the whole, this guy seems pretty blessed. He's doing well for himself. He's sitting on an ivory throne that has six steps with lions on either side. It seems like the hand of the Lord is on him. He's doing okay. And then we get to 1 Kings 11. And the change in mood is abrupt. King Solomon, however, this is going to make you sad. It's going to kind of suck the air out of the room a little bit. Loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely Turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. That's like three anniversaries a day. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as the heart of his father David had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. If you keep reading, you see that he actually builds temples in other parts of the country for other gods. And so what do you do with Solomon? Which box do you put him in? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Because that's the thing. You read the Bible and you kind of want to put them in the good guy or the bad guy category. But with Solomon, you know, he's the chosen king. He builds the temple. And when he prays, when he prays, he's humble. And he knows, he knows that his rise has nothing to do with him, but it's just the favor of God on him. He knows. And yet, he turns around and begins to disobey all these commandments that God gave him, the idolatry, the temples for the pagan gods. You go, good guy or bad guy? And I think the, the, the answer has to be that he's a little bit of both. He's a little bit of both. He doesn't fit into either box completely. And you know what? 
I can relate to that. I can relate to being a little bit of both. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person in the room that can relate to being a little bit of both. Because on one hand, I'm, I'm saved and my sins have been forgiven. But I sinned this morning. And so I look at my life and I got to go, I'm a little bit of both. I'm under construction. I'm in the process of being sanctified. Yes, yes, God has looked down on me and declared me innocent, but I continue to be selfish. And so I go, mm, I'm a little bit of both. There's so much of Solomon to emulate, but there's so much of Solomon to avoid. I wrote down three things as I close here. Three ways that I'm just like Solomon. Maybe you can relate to these, and maybe we can actually grow if we're willing to be honest about ourselves. Here's the first way that I can relate to Solomon. Solomon didn't listen to his own good advice. It's written that he wrote down 3,000 Proverbs. We have 800 of them recorded in the book of Proverbs. And one of the Proverbs that Solomon wrote, Mr. 700 Wives, Three Concubines. This is the one he wrote. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. <laughs> Whoever does so destroys himself. Solomon wrote that. And he didn't take his own advice. He thought, ah, this is good advice for some other folks. I hope they listen to me. So it wasn't a lack of knowledge. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon writes four speeches, full speeches about adultery and the destruction that follows that. It's not that he doesn't know about the dangers of sexual sin. He's the genius. He's the expert. And he doesn't take his own advice. And I was thinking about myself. My advice, my advice to the men in the room would be, don't stay up from 10 until midnight, scrolling on your phone, just opening up YouTube, trying to find some stuff, enjoying your own, your, your me time finally. Don't, don't do that. If you do that, it compromises your sleep, and then it'll compromise your ability to be a great husband or a great father, or a great friend, a great worker the next day. Just go to bed. Go to bed and plug your phone in somewhere else in the house so that you can go to bed and get good rest, ready to wake up, serve, and seize the day. But guess who has a pretty hard time taking his own advice? My, my advice would be to create boundaries on your phone. Would, would to make, put time limits on the apps and make it black and white and plug it in somewhere else in your house so that you're not constantly attached to it. My advice would be when you, when you spend time with your family, don't have it in your pocket or on the table or on your chest, my advice would be to put it in a drawer. Guess who has a hard time taking his own advice? My advice to the husbands in the room would be to always speak gently and kindly to your spouse and your children. To not try to win the fight, but to try to win at listening. To be a better listener than anything else in these conversations. Guess who has a hard time taking his own advice? Man, I'm a lot like Solomon in that way. And when we, when we know the right thing to do, friends, when we know the right thing to do and we don't do it, that is a sign of a heart that isn't fully committed to the Lord. It's a symptom of it, like Solomon. Here's the other way that I'm a lot like Solomon. Solomon loved church, man. Oh, man, he could, he could coordinate a service. I mean, the man built 
God's first big, beautiful building to be worshipped in. It was the calling on his life early on. Was to build God a place to be worshipped. And, and this was interesting. When he's done, when he's praying about it and dedicating it to the Lord, and he's essentially saying, God, see, look, I built you a temple. This is God's response. It's interesting. It almost feels like God wasn't as impressed as Solomon wanted him to be. Listen to this. It says, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, then I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to your father David, and I will live among the Israelites, and I will not abandon my people Israel. In other words, Solomon, thank you for the church. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you built it. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to come and be with my people, but Solomon, let's Let's just make sure we're on the same page here. If you obey me, if you follow my commandments, if you listen to my decrees, if there's a pattern of obedience in your life, then, see, see Solomon, the success of this thing does not rise and fall with the building. It comes down to obedience. You can throw the party with all the meats. But if there's not obedience that follows up with that after everybody goes home, you're wasting your time. Here's a concern I have for myself and for American Christians. The vast majority of, Ameri of, of Christians are educated past their level of obedience. The vast majority of Christians are educated past their level of obedience. If we would just do what we already knew, our lives would change. If we come here and we learn this, we learn all about this, and, 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 and you learn about Solomon and how many workers there were, and they, man, they floated the trees down the river, there were lions on the throne, and you leave and you get in the car, you go to group, and, and the, the, the question that permeates is like, what'd you learn? What'd you learn about it? If it stops there, we're not really doing it. We're not really doing what God wants us to do. It, it's not just about learning it, it's about living it. The question is not, what did you learn on Sunday? The question is, what does God want me to do because of what I learned on Sunday? There's another follow-up step, and the, the vast majority of us are interested in, like, in going deeper. If you've been a Christian, you want to go deeper. If it doesn't spur on obedience, then what's the point? Jesus said, how am I going to know if you love me? I'm going to know if you love me if you obey my commandments, if you obey the Father. So it doesn't come down to whether you attend a service or attend a group. It comes down to obedience in your life. That's what God says he's looking for. When we love coming to church, being here, having friends, going to group, but we're not on a very individual, personal level, walking out the basic teachings of Jesus, to serve, to give, to encourage. It's a symptom of a heart that isn't fully committed to God. Here's the last one. Solomon wanted to fit God in alongside his other interests. Solomon doesn't denounce God. He doesn't deconstruct his faith. He doesn't say, I'm done with church. He keeps doing all of those things. He just builds temples to other gods too. It's as if he does enough for God that he justifies what he's doing for these other little gods in his life. 
Remember those second century Christians I talked about a couple minutes ago? Hey, we put Jesus Christ in the pantheon. You guys excited to be official? They said, tear it down or we'll do it for you. They said, tear, he's us. Our God demands exclusive worship, not worship with the other gods. And what they were doing when they said that is that they were living out the teaching of Jesus that to worship God is an exclusive deal. It's not God and. Jesus doesn't want half of your heart and so you can give the rest of your heart to something else. It's not, God is not interested in half of your heart. God can't transform your heart if he only gets half of it to be transformed. It's as if God says, I can't transform your life if all you want me to do is fit into it. So we've got to ask ourselves. Everybody has to ask themselves. Is there a portion of my life, is there an area of my life that I'm keeping from him? Am I asking God to fit into my life? Or am I asking him to transform all of my life? Your belief in the goodness of God will help you answer that question because if you believe that he's good and you believe that he loves you and that you believe that he's for you, that he's not out to get you, well, then it's a little bit easier to open your hands and say, take it all. We've got to ask ourselves, are there, are there idols in our pantheon that we are unwilling to smash that we want to put God in alongside of? We've got to be honest about that. Here's the last verse I'll leave you with. It says a lot about God and it says a lot about us. This is in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. It says, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. It means he cares. He's looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God wants our hearts to be fully committed to him so that he can strengthen us. So, so my last question is, is your heart fully committed to him? Solomon had a half heart for God. And it makes us sad to watch. The blessing and the favor, it goes quickly. You got you to gotta ask yourself, is my heart fully committed to him? Or is there an area of my life that I'm keeping from him? Will you think about that for 60 seconds before we sing to close our service? Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.